I'm Carrie, And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever and I am like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover. An author, awesome. A bookseller, bingo. A member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. This week's guest is Angela Jackson-Brown, an award-winning novelist, poet, and playwright. She's also a professor at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, who completed her MFA at Spalding University in Louisville, where she is also a member of the Creative Writing Graduate Faculty. Her most recent novel, When Stars Rain Down, was published in 2021, and it's a historical fiction story set in 1930s Georgia and has been nominated for several awards. Angel also has a new novel coming out in July called The Light Always Breaks, set in post-World War II Washington, D.C., that features political and romantic intrigue between a high-powered interracial couple. These are standalone novels, but what is cool is that these books' characters are in the same fictional universe, so readers get a chance to reconnect with characters they may have met before. Angela talks to us about how she uses fiction to write about experiences in her life she wished she'd had, why she started writing plays, and the first book she read as a child that made a big impression on her. And this will surprise you. Listeners, we just wanted to let you know that next week we will have a rebroadcast because I will be away. I'm taking my daughter and her best friend to New Orleans for their spring break. And so I'm looking forward to a week of beignets and sun and probably a few glasses of wine. And so we will not have an episode next week, but join us the week after and we will have a brand new episode with uh, debut author Maggie Smith. But first, I hear that your daughter had some exciting news, Carrie. She did. She called me yesterday and, you know, she doesn't call me. Most of the time she texts. And her pathway at her high school is video production, right? So different schools in in JCPS have different pathways where you can sort of study things. And so she created a silent film and she submitted it to the International Youth Silent Film Festival and she's a finalist. And so her film is going to be screened in April up in Detroit, Michigan. And we're not going to be able to go because uh, the day of the screening is one of the days that she and I will be in Ecuador. The bad news is that we'll miss it, but she's very excited. Uh, You know, it's just very cool. So that is very cool. Well, congratulations to Nora. So is that something that is just an interest of hers? Or is that something she wants to pursue more as she goes into college? I think it's just, she's just kind of interested in it, but I don't think she has, you know, grand plans to, you know. She's not going to be the next Steven Spielberg or anything. No, no, I don't, I don't think so. But, you know, she's only 18. So we shall see, you know, who knows where life will take her. What was the movie about? It's called Childhood Lost. And what's funny is that she, she had a friend of hers help her. So her friend is kind of the actor. And so Nora used one of her American Girl dolls. And basically it's about, you know, how when you're a child, you play with these dolls and then you you get to a certain point and you put the dolls or the toys away. And in this one, the doll sort of returns. <laughs> the doll comes back and is like, why aren't you playing with me anymore? Now, the doll doesn't say that because obviously it's a silent film, but that's kind of the gist of it. Um, this sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> 
Well, I was kind of wondering if it would go in that direction, but it's not. Oh, her, okay. her film is is not. It 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 ends on kind of a sweet note. Oh well, that's um, that's good. Although I have watched a couple of horror movies that have that, like Chucky, isn't that? <laughs> isn't that and one? and also The Conjuring. There's a doll in that that's cursed oh. and haunted. So now I kind of have this creepy thing about dolls. <laughs> you explaining that gives me the not want to watch bit. the video. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> not not want to watch the film. <laughs> No, I definitely want to see it. Uh, maybe she can change my mind about creepy dolls. This is not scary, so. Well, I wanted to tell you that I started listening on audio a book that you talked about on the show. Normally, we don't, even though we want to read books that the other one has talked about, we don't often do it because we have to have books to talk about on the show. And we don't want to repeat, but I am listening to The Storyteller by Dave Grohl that you talked about several weeks ago and he mm-hmm. is one of the most famous rock stars alive today and was part of Nirvana and he started Foo Fighters and I think we discussed the fact that I sort of followed Nirvana I don't follow the Foo Fighters it's not really my type of music but his story kind of interested me so I've started listening to it and what I want to say is that I love him because he loves his mother so much that is, is so definitely a endearing. Boy. Yeah, it is so endearing to me to hear him talk about how much he loves his mother and that she was always his best friend. And oh, that just is so touching. Yeah, the cool thing is he's, you know, he's married to a woman and he has three daughters. So he is just surrounded by women and is just totally thrilled with that. He's de- he's definitely good with women. So not that I know that from personal experience, but um <laughs> He's good with women. You mean he? <laughs> you mean he appreciates the women in his life? He reveres the yes. women in his life. Yes, let's say that. That sounds better. You know, speaking of awesome women, Dave Grohl's mom, and he's got daughters and all this stuff. Uh, let's talk to Angela, who writes about awesome women in in both of her novels. She's got strong women in those books, and she's an awesome woman herself. So let's talk to her. Angela Jackson Brown, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Angela, a friend of mine several years ago recommended your debut novel to me, Drinking from a Bitter Cup. And I read it and I remember thinking that I was anxious to see what else you would do after that. And so we're here today to talk about those things. So I'm so excited to have you as a guest. But I wanted to know, did you always want to become a writer? What was your path? getting there? You know what? I can't remember a time where writing wasn't a part of my life. Even before I could write letters, I would sit with a pencil or a pen and just scribble in notebooks, believing that I was actually putting words on the page. And then as I got older, my father was just the most amazing cheerleader. And he would constantly feed me with the idea that someday you're going to be a writer. He never lived to see that dream come to fruition, but he was the main person who made me believe that this was possible. So you graduated from college. Were you a typical English major? And did you work in another professional endeavor and wrote on the side? What, what was the, the path for you? Well, I spent a lot of years in high school and even in undergraduate writing, but not writing with the idea of publishing. That just never was, at least at that time of my life, that was never anything that was 
gave me a sense of urgency. I never really felt like, oh my goodness, if I don't get published, then I'm not a writer. I always embraced the idea that I was a writer who just wasn't published. It wasn't until I'd say in the early 2000s when my dad got sick with lung cancer that I started writing with an intensity because I think it really sent home the idea that we're not here forever. And if becoming an author is really the goal, then I really need to get serious about it. So at that point, I enrolled at the Spalding University's MFA program. I found some amazing mentors and friends who encouraged me and helped guide me through the process. So by the time I was in my mid-40s, I published my first book. So I'm I'm a newbie to publishing, but I'm not a newbie to writing because writing has been a part of my life from almost day one. Were there certain writers or novels, either when you were a, a child or even as an adult, that were especially aspiring to you as a writer? Oh, there's so many. I would say the first book that had a major impact on my life was, and this is going to sound interesting, but it was the novel Gone with the Wind. I read that book when I was probably about 10 years old. Oh my goodness. And I read it and I was traumatized, uh, particularly about how the, the Black slaves in the story were treated. And then I turned around maybe the next summer and I read Roots by Alex Haley. And it gave me a totally different idea of what slavery was like from the standpoint of a Black person telling the story. So after that, I just continued to read books that were inspiring, like Alice Walker's work, The Color Purple. Then when I moved to Kentucky, I found Crystal Wilkinson, Silas House. I fell in love with science fiction, so I read a lot of Octavia Butler. The most recent author that I have fallen in love with is Robert Jones Jr., who wrote The Prophets, I'm talking about LGBTQ plus in slavery days. Like who would have even thought to write about that topic because it's just not something we think about. But as he says, of course there were queer people uh, during slavery. So why not explore that topic? So I've just been inspired by so many different writers. It's hard to pinpoint one. So you've written several novels and a book of poetry. And When Stars Rain Down was a finalist for the 2021 David J. Langham Sr. Prize in American Historical Fiction. So I've read it, but could you give our listeners a, a brief summary of the book? Absolutely. The, the book takes place the summer of 1936 in the fictional town of Parsons, Georgia, during one of the worst droughts to hit the United States. So that part is very much true in the novel. And it particularly hits hard in the southern regions like Georgia. And so the book focuses on a 17-year-old protagonist, Opal Pruitt, who's really coming of age. She's figuring things out about herself. She's feeling love and the desire to be loved. But as all of that is going on, there is racial tension growing in the community leading up to the annual Founders Day where some really tragic things happen that directly affect Opal. The book is about, obviously, race and racism, but I'd like to believe that it's more about love and community and family 
and how even in the midst of terrible situations, people can come together from different backgrounds and do their best to try to preserve the sense of community that's there. So I I read the book and one of the things that I really appreciated about it is that to me, at least, I was more focused on the story of women's relationships in the book. So Opal has this very close relationship with her grandmother. Her grandmother has a relationship, a friendship with Miss Peggy, who's a white woman for whom she works. Miss Peggy has a relationship with her own daughter, Miss Corinne. And then Opal also has a relationship with Miss Luvinia, who's a spiritual old woman in the community. So you know, there's all of these female relationships that make up the story. So did you have a favorite relationship that you wrote about in the book? Oh, that's such a difficult question. I'm, it's hard it's to say. like picking to a say. favorite child. <laughs> I know. I've, obviously, I loved Opal's relationship with her grandmother, Birdie. And I created that relationship because I never had a relationship with a grandmother. My grandmother's passed away before I was born. So I never had that relationship. And so what I often do in my writing, if there's something missing in my life, I will often address it in my stories. So if I don't have, for example, I didn't have a really good relationship with my adopted mother. So in drinking from a bitter cup, that was the mother in that story was sort of my way of coming to terms with my own relationships. But of course, I can't ignore Opal and Miss Lavinia. Miss Lavinia was probably one of my favorite characters in the story, just because there was so much mystery there. And unfortunately, I didn't get to, sh- to show it all in this book, but in a later novel, I will show Miss Lavinia's story. So I'm excited about that. A lot of times writers take from their own experiences, you know, things that have actually happened to them. I don't know that I've ever, at least I don't remember an author saying that they've written about things that they didn't have or and maybe things that they wish they would have had. So I, I think that's really interesting. Does that make it harder or more of a challenge or does that sort of free you up to let your imagination kind of run wherever you want it to go? You know, in terms of creating the relationship of Opal and Grandma Birdie, I felt like I was able to pour all of the emotions into that relationship between the two of them that I believe I would have poured into a relationship with an actual grandmother if I'd had one to live. So it wasn't a sad process. If anything, it was uplifting because I vicariously got to live through Opal and her relationship with her grandmother and the other women in the story. Well, and their relationship is so different from like Miss Peggy's relationship with her daughter, you know, and so you you have the spectrum of what female relationships can be. And sometimes they're a challenge, you know, to live through. So I have to ask this next question. When I was reading the book, I got a little frustrated by some of the white characters in the novel. For example, Lori Beth, in the story is a white girl who writes up a newspaper story about Opal that Opal directly asked her not to write. And so I found Lori Beth very exasperating. And I couldn't help thinking of the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So can you talk to us a little bit about, as a writer, the challenges of writing about white characters who maybe they wanted to do right, but they just flubbed it up so... (laughs) 
So, well, so talk to us a little bit about that. So the way that scene came about, I was writing it shortly after the presidential elections, not this last one, but the one between Hillary Clinton and our former president. And I can remember a lot of people, white allies, people who were friends, people who I trusted, people who were good people who very aggressively would approach me about things that they wanted to do as an ally, even when I would say, that's not really what we need, or that's not really what I need. And rather than accepting that, they would get frustrated. You know, I'm trying to be a good ally, but you're not allowing that. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, but if you're a good ally, you should be listening, not talking. Mm -hmm. And so I know my friends well enough to know that they will read my work. So I said, rather than having a combative argument over this when I'm extremely emotional, why not work through it in this book? And that's where the character Lori Beth was born. I never saw her, or I, and I don't see her as a bad person. I just see her as someone whose exuberance outweighs her common sense in understanding that to be an ally is truly about listening and honoring the request of the people you're trying to support. So it wasn't frustrating to write it. It was really kind of my way of letting go of some of my own angst about good, well-meaning people in my life. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about that is sometimes I think it's hard to see things in yourself or, or maybe in somebody very close to you. But then when you see it in another realm, like on the page, it's very obvious what's going on, but you may not see that in your own life because you're too close to it, you know? So I think right. that's an interesting way of sort of working through that that issue. Uh, also, I found it interesting, Lori Beth's character, how she was just really unable to put herself in Opal's shoes. Like she couldn't get out of her own shoes long enough to even set a pinky toe into Opal's shoes. And so I felt like that was a really important part of the story. I mean, it's not a huge part of the story, but I felt like it was really an important part. Right. I didn't want to come off as preachy. I didn't want to come across as if I was, you know, indicting every young white woman with the desire to do good things. But I did want to use it as an opportunity to say, you know, this is a complicated situation, this race and racism and systemic racism. These are all complex, complicated issues that we're never going to be able to unravel in one fell swoop. And sadly, Lori Beth thought, if I write this article, this will fix things. Mm-hmm. And we live in a world, and they live in a world, that we know things like that can't be fixed with one good intention. And the good thing about Lori Beth, and, and I think I keep coming back to her because I see her as a beacon of hope. So she will make appearances in at least two other novels and you'll get to see her maturation. You'll get to see her evolve into someone who knows how to temper herself a little bit more. Mm -hmm. 
So the novel also looks at religion and spirituality in ways that I really appreciated. Although some Christian readers really did not like Miss Luenia and felt that she was like some kind of sorceress and should not have been included in a book about a good Christian. And the novel also features Mr. Tote, who does not share the religious dedication that Birdie does. So Birdie and Opal, you know, they're, they're very much involved in their church community and they go to church every week. But even with that, Opal struggles with God. Some of the situations that affect her, she questions God. So was that a challenge for you to write about characters who really spanned, you know, like a pretty wide religious or spirituality gap? You know, that was, I guess it shouldn't have been surprising, but it was a bit surprising to me, the reaction that some readers had. Not not a lot, at least not from what I was able to read and keep up with. Not a lot, but there were enough that it made me pause a bit to think that anyone would feel so threatened by a character or a person who shares different beliefs. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a struggle for me to write that section because I would have to say, my own beliefs run the gamut of anywhere from where Mr. Tote was all the way to where uh, Miss Birdie and finally Miss Lavinia. So on any given day, I'm in a place of where I'm really thinking long and hard about what do I believe and how does that work in the context of my life? So writing about characters like Miss Lavinia, someone who has found ways to honor the religions of her heritage because she has a really close connection to her African roots. She's from, originally her people are from West Africa. And unlike a lot of slaves, she didn't lose that connection to the polytheism that her people would have have taken part in. But at the same time, She's been able to look at Christianity from an analytical way to be able to discern what parts of this religion marry nicely with the religion that my people came here with. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me how quickly individuals are able to dismiss the beliefs and values of another group of people. And even more so interesting that the people that were responsible for enslaving Miss Lovinia and her people practiced Christianity and felt that they were the best of Christian representation. But that t- that seems to be in contradiction to each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I loved it because I'm I tend to be like you. I, I'm just sort of all over the map on my beliefs about things. And so I saw a couple reviews. It just baffled me. Probably the challenging part of this is that my book was published by Thomas Nelson mm-hmm. and they are a religious press, particularly Christian religion. And so many of the people who read their fiction have a very narrow view of what those books are supposed to be about. So my book does kind of fall outside of the margin of what Thomas Nelson normally published. Mm-hmm. In those readers' defense, this probably was a bit of a shakeup of what they were expecting mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, Christian fiction. Right. But I never really thought of my novel as Christian fiction. I thought of it as fiction that had Christian characters in it. But the Christianity wasn't what defined the novel. It's what 
defined some of the people in the novel. Right. Well, you have a new novel coming out in July called The Light Always Breaks, and I just finished it a few days ago. And it is also historical fiction. And I did not realize until Carrie and I were talking yesterday, and we were, you know, she read one of your books and I read the other. And I don't think either one of us realized until I happened to read a synopsis of When Stars Rain Down that they're kind of in the same fictional universe. Mm -hmm. There's two characters who are in When Stars Rain Down who also make an appearance in your newest one. Parsons, Georgia makes another appearance because one of the main characters is from there. So in this one, it's it's set in the late 1940s after World War II, and it focuses on the relationship between a young white charismatic junior senator from Georgia and a young black entrepreneurial woman who owns a very successful restaurant in Washington, D.C. And in many ways, it's about this taboo interracial relationship and how it can sabotage everything that they've both been working for because an interracial relationship is just not accepted. So what was the kernel that you started out with for this book? So I started writing a version of this book when I was in my 20s. There's maybe really the names and the fact that Cortland's a senator is just about all that remained from that book. But I I like the thought of those characters of Cortland and Eva. So when I, I was looking through an old folder and I found the draft of that novel and I thought, okay, I want to do something with this. So I thought in terms of, okay, there's a character in When Stars Rain Down who's friends with Jimmy Earl. Maybe I could work on expanding his life into another novel. And so it just sort of went from there. And the idea of I wanted a Black woman who was his intellectual and economic equal. In the sense that oftentimes when we read books about interracial relationships, the white character is always seen as the one who's going to lose something by the relationship going forward. And I wanted to be able to illustrate that both characters had equal amount of things that they could lose if they allowed themselves to pursue the love between each other. The other thing that I was interested in was just the politics of 1948. It was probably one of the most memorable political seasons because of the strife between the Democratic Party. You know, part of the Southern Democrats wanted to go towards very conservative, you know, keep black people, you know, in the same position. And the more progressive Democrats wanting to integrate and do everything other things. So I was really interested in what was going on in the civil rights movement of that time. A lot of people only think about the civil rights movement as taking place between 1954 and 1968. But the civil rights movement, it started from the very first day the first slave was brought to this country. So civil rights efforts have always been a part of our history. It's just that we focus on 54 to 68, because it's the most newsworthy and TV was beginning to take shape. So you could tune into your nightly news and see the images of what was taking place on the streets of places like Montgomery and Birmingham, as opposed to before. So I really had a great time just exploring the political aspects of this story, as well as the love relationship between Eva and Cortland. 
That was eye-opening to me. I did not realize that President Truman at the time was in favor of more equal rights for Black Americans. I, you're right. I mainly think about the civil rights movement as being in the 60s. So- we usually attribute to the Kennedys and Dr. King, but so much work was done years before they were even... I mean, in the time that this this book was set... Dr. King was still a teenager, if I'm not mistaken, a very prolific teenager, but he was not active in anything related to civil rights, not to the degree what we see later on in his life. And so people like Adam Clayton Powell Jr. and A. Philip Randolph and Mary McLeod Bethune, they all sort of gotten lost in the conversation about civil rights. But had it not been for those leaders, what we saw happen, you know, of a decade later wouldn't have happened. So one of the things that struck me about Cortland, the young senator from Georgia, is that he has very progressive views for the time on race and believes in equality, but because he has higher aspirations, which may even include running for the presidency, he is afraid to make big moves. And he's afraid to say and do in the Senate what needs to be said and done. And instead, he does kindnesses around the margins. He sponsors a young Black man to go to Howard University. He befriends a Black congressman. He's like all talk, but very little action. And it made me think a little bit about the conversation we were having earlier about Lori Beth and Opal, but also about race relations in America currently and the racial tensions from several summers ago. And there was a sentiment among a lot of Black community leaders that progressive whites were all bark and no bite. And so, you know, you've talked a little bit about this, uh, but I feel like in this book, you go even farther on that idea. Right. I think it's the idea of, and it's a quote, might be a quote from the Bible. I think I've heard it in terms of that, but goodness alone will not save you. Mm. And this idea that, you know, just because people speak a good game, if they're not willing to put anything at risk, then what does any of that really mean? If you see a child in the middle of the road and all you do is scream to the child to move, but you're not willing to take that extra step and run out there and grab the child, even if it might mean you lose your own life, then are you really the person that you think you are? Because it it takes some type of, I don't know, it takes a lot to be able to make that leap. You know, we often want to be cheerleaders from the sidelines, but we don't want to get into the game. And I wanted to be able to show that through the lens of Eva, who often pushes Cortland to be better, or Cortland's friend, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was a real person and a very staunch, progressive kind of politician who believed in action from a time period when, you know, people being passive was was almost the norm. And then to show the parallels between then and now, because what I always try to do with my historical fiction is I try to make it transparent enough that the reader can see, oh, wow, we're just circling the wagons. We haven't really made the movement that we thought we had made because we're kind of right back where we started. Well, and Eva even pushes her sister and her brother-in-law who, you know, they don't want to make a lot of waves because they're, you know, they're scared. You know, they think it should go a little slower. And so it's it's not just with Cortland, it's with other with other black people as well. Oh, absolutely. I used to think 
that every Black person supported the Civil Rights Movement, that every Black person supported Dr. King. It wasn't until later years that I began to realize through study that the majority of Black people did not actively take part in the Civil Rights Movement. Now, justifiably so, because many of them had their lives threatened, Mm -hmm. their livelihood, their homes, their children, their wives, their husbands. So there was not a great incentive to jump into this movement because it could mean the end of your life. And it definitely, in the case of Cortland, could mean the end of your career. And one thing that Cortland tries to do to justify his lack of action is that basically I'm one of the good ones. And if if they get rid of me, then you really are left with no one. But is that really a plausible response when you see lynchings taking place, when you see, you know, your friends not be allowed to eat in the same dining room as you, when you see someone you care about have bad things happen to hurt, like at what point do you make the decision? It's not worth it for me to stay on the sidelines anymore. I read your debut novel, Drinking from a Bitter Cup, and enjoyed it. And I'm wondering, now that you're three books in, how you think your writing has changed from your first book now to your third novel? When I wrote Drinking from a Bitter Cup, I was basically writing my own life story. I mean, with some, some changes, obviously. But there were a lot of the things that happened in that book that also happened in my life. And I tried to stick to that mantra of write what you know. And so I felt comfortable, even though I was writing about a lot of things that made me very uncomfortable to relive, I felt like I understood that story. As I progressed to other books, I realized that as a writer, I have to challenge myself in order for me to stay engaged with the work. So even with the possibility of losing a reader, Because When Stars Rain Down is very different from The Light Always Breaks. It's some of the same characters, but from a different lens. And so if anyone is just sort of looking for that same kind of energy that was in When Stars Rain Down, it's not entirely there in this book because they are, you know, of a different economic level, of a different, you know, academic level, just a different sociological level. I mean, everything you can think of is very different. But I like that. I like the idea that every time I write another project, that it's going to challenge me in ways that the project previously didn't. So even if I have it where write something and someone says, oh, I was hoping it would be like the last book, I'm okay with that. You know, because I write for myself first. Like Amy said, when we were discussing yesterday and realized that these characters are in the same universe. So you mentioned that you have other books coming down the road. Who are some of the other characters that you'd like to explore from this Parsons community? Well, I don't want to give away too much, but I will say that Miss Lovinia is definitely one of the books that I want to work on. There's going to be a lot of extensive research for that book. So it's going to be a ways down the road before it it makes an appearance. So that's one. And my next book after The Light Always Breaks will focus on Opal's family again. So we'll get to see that family 20 plus years later. Mm -hmm. I 
enjoy books that are not necessarily about the same characters, but are in the same fictional universe. I always think that's interesting, exploring some of those smaller characters or side characters more fully. So I I think that's exciting that you're doing that. And I I look forward to reading more. One last question, though, I think maybe a lot of people don't realize and neither did I until I was researching you a little bit. In addition to your novels, you've also written at least six plays and even a musical and some of them you have directed and produced yourself. And so I'm wondering, what do you enjoy about writing? directing producing plays that is different from writing novels oh my goodness I love the excitement of the theater I love working with actors I love staging I mean I love everything about producing and directing a play and I love that it allows my vision to become I guess what 3d or Mm -hmm. something to that effect so that it's not just flat on the page that the words that I'm creating and the characters that I'm envisioning that now I have found a way to bring them to life, almost like breathing life into them. So there's just such such an excitement for me anytime that I'm able to write and direct. Unfortunately, directing is not going to be something I'll be able to do too much of because my plate is very full these days. So I'm, I'm very comfortable to pass my work over to others to direct just because it's I say it's like Christmas because you walk into the theater and you don't know the interpretation that the director and the actors have created when it comes to your work so it's almost like you're seeing something brand new in a different incarnation than maybe it was in your own head Hmm. so did you have a a history with acting or doing theater of some sort before you started writing plays? Not really. I mean, growing up, I did a lot of church theater. So there was that. But my husband and I, we've always enjoyed going to see theatrical productions. We really have tried to support the theatrical community in Indianapolis, uh, which is close to where we live. And one thing that I was noticing And I am the biggest fan of To Kill a Mockingbird, but I felt like if I see one more production (laughs) of To Kill a Mockingbird, that I don't know what I'm going to do with myself because it felt like those were the only roles that were being produced for Black actors in our community. And I'm like, I know there are more works out there. So why are we just focusing on these? I love August Wilson, but I also felt like, okay, We have contemporary writers writing good material. Why aren't we doing that? So then I just decided uh, to honor Toni Morrison's words, which is if there's something you want to read and it hasn't been written, write yourself. Mm. Because again, I looked into the cost of bringing some of those plays that I really enjoyed from Broadway or from larger theaters like in Atlanta or Chicago. And, And it's very expensive to get the rights to produce those plays. So I said, you know what? I'm a writer. I can do this. So I did. It's a different way of expression. And it allows for me to write a story in its completion in a much shorter time period than writing a novel. It has been so great hearing about the novel that came out in 2021. And then the other one. Yes, July 5th. So we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading.
We are back with Angela Jackson Brown and with Carrie. So Carrie, I used to ask you before we would record what book you were going to talk about. And I've been trying to keep from doing that because I like the surprise. I like the suspense of not knowing what it is you're going to talk about because I like surprises. So what are you reading right now, Carrie? I thought you were going to say that you just gave up because you would ask me what I was going to talk about and I would have no idea. So so the book that I just finished yesterday, I substitute teach. And I think I was in a fifth grade class and a student had this book on her desk and the title of the book, it just sold me. It's called The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place. And the first book in the series is called The Mysterious Howling, and it's by Mary Rose Wood. So I saw this book on this girl's desk and I asked her, you know, is this, is this good? And she said, yes. And I just love that it had the word incorrigible in the title. That's so, all it takes. It's just that's all it takes. Word. Okay. Yeah, mostly. I mean, I was just like, oh, this is interesting because it's a book for kids. And that's not a word that most kids use with any regularity. And so several weeks later, I kept thinking about this book and it was a fun, quick read. I think this would be a great book to read in between maybe heavier books. You know, you finish a book that's really heavy and dense and and sort of wears you out and, and you just want something that's sort of fun and light and quick. This series, I think, would be a good choice. So this is a story. It's about a governess and who doesn't love uh, a story. I just finished teaching Jane Eyre to high schoolers. So I've got governesses on my mind. But this is a story of Miss Penelope Lumley. She's 15 years old and she gets her first job as a governess. And when she goes to this home, you know, this very wealthy family has hired her. And first she hears this awful howling sound. And so she thinks that they must have this band of dogs that are very poorly behaved. Well, no, it's the children. The children... that are being uh, raised by this very wealthy couple were found in the woods and they were apparently raised by wolves. So we we don't know their backstory, but uh, they are given the names Alexander, Beowulf, and Cassiopeia. And so it is about Miss Lumley trying to, she thinks she's going to go into this job and she's going to teach them French and art and philosophy. And she has to teach them things like how to put on pants correctly. (laughs) Um, It's just a cute book, but you sort of realize as as you're reading the story that there's these mysteries, right? So the biggest one being, where are these children's parents and why were they left in the woods to begin with? And was there a wolf that actually took care of them? But then you start thinking that there's something more sinister going on. So again, it is a series. I plan to read more in the series, uh, but I don't want to give too much away. But it is just a fun, I mean, how can you go wrong with three children and a governess and some mysteries? So anyway, that's all I'll say about it, but highly recommend. Oh, that sounds cute. Yeah, it's very cute. So Angela, what have you been reading? Oh my goodness. Well, I have a book that I'm reading with my students in my fiction writing course. It's called We Are Not Like Them. And it was written by Christine Pride and Joe Piazza. And it's about two friends, one whose husband is a police officer. She's white. And the other character who's black is a news reporter. And the police officer is involved in the shooting. And the two friends have to figure out how they keep their relationship intact while dealing with this very volatile subject that's so timely right now. And I assigned the book because 
so often my students will ask the question, is it okay for me to write from the point of view of someone of a different culture or different ethnicity? And I never tell them no, but I do talk to them specifically about the trials and tribulations that go along with figuring out how to be authentic when writing about people you don't know firsthand. And so I thought this book would be a good example of how two friends found a way to write about race and all of the delicacies that are involved in it in a way that was respectful to both cultures. I remember when this book came out and it sounded really intriguing. I haven't read it yet, but I'm interested to hear you talk about it. So how's it been with your students? How have they reacted to it? You know, that, that so far the, re- the reception for the book has been great. It has taught them a lot about just the importance of honoring the truths of different groups of people. Like I learned things about what it must feel like if you are the family members of the police officers involved in such a situation. That's not to excuse the behavior, but sometimes I think we lose sight of the fact that there are people suffering when bad things happen on all sides. Mm. And I think what this book did for, for me and it did for my class is that it forced us to address all sides of this situation And we were able to do it in a safe way because it was fiction, as opposed to us analyzing what was in the news. Mm -hmm. Well, Amy, what have you been reading over there? So a few weeks ago, we had a Croatian book lover and book blogger on the podcast named Ivana. And hearing her story about growing up in Croatia as Yugoslavia split apart and the Serbo-Croatian War that followed and how that affected her country was really interesting to me. And so it sent me to do lots of Googling and research. And I wanted to read some novels that were set in Croatia. But as we were talking to Ivana, it became clear that there aren't a huge number of Croatian authors who were translated into English. So instead, I was looking for books that that I could find relatively easy at my library. And I came upon a book called Girl at War by Sarah Novich. And I had just started the book when our episode with Ivana aired. And so I mentioned this book in passing, but I wanted to give everyone a little more of my thoughts on this book because I think it is one that's definitely worth your time, especially as we hear accounts of what's happening in Ukraine right now. And the Serbo-Croatian War and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia are not the same, but there are some basic similarities of war in general that I think can help us envision what is going on in Ukraine right now. So first, a few things about the author. Sarah Novich was born in Croatia, but her parents migrated to the United States when she was very small. So she grew up American. You know, almost all of her memories growing up were of this country. But she and her family would go back and visit a lot, and she would hear stories all the time about the war. And in her 20s, she decided to write a book about it, piecing those little stories that she had heard together. And she said that people in Croatia were really eager to talk about the war because even 10 years after, which is when she was starting to write this, that people felt like the war had been forgotten by everybody but them. So Girl at War is the story of a girl named Anna who in 1991 is 10 years old and she's living in the capital of Zagreb in an apartment with her parents and her baby sister. And she goes to school, rides her bike with her best friend, a boy named Luca, and she plays soccer. And it's a fairly normal childhood. And then strange things start happening in the city. 
It starts with crosswords between Serbian neighbors and Croatians at the corner store. And she can tell that her parents are just a little anxious when the news is on. And then sometimes her class at school goes to the bomb shelters underneath the building for air raid drills. But yet things still seem kind of normal. But then things began to change more and things get scarier as everything is dark at night because her parents, along with all the other people in the apartment building, don't want to use electricity so that their building can't be seen at night by snipers. And sometimes her father hides her in the linen closet, which is in the middle of the apartment and isn't near any windows. So eventually there begins to be mass bombing of her city. And her baby sister is very, very sick. And the local doctor says that she has a birth defect that needs immediate surgery. But obviously she can't have this kind of operation there because they're in the middle of a war. So her parents make a huge decision to sign papers for her sister to be flown by an international aid organization to Philadelphia to get this life-saving surgery that she needs. And then she'll just stay with a foster family in America until she's well, and then be sent back to Croatia to Anna's family. So this book jumps back and forth in time. And when we see Anna again, it's 10 years later, and she's 20 years old, and she's a college student in New York City. And she's been in the U.S. for much of her teen years, reunited with her sister and the American couple who took her sister in. And over flashbacks, the author gives us pieces of the puzzle of how Anna ended up in America, why she hides her past from most of her American friends until one day she decides she needs to go back to Croatia for closure and to see her friend Luca again. And she and Luca make a road trip to places that meant so much to her as a child and the memories come flooding back. This book was a five-star read for me. I loved how it made me think about the collective trauma of a place and how you get back to a sense of normal. For this book, it's about the Serbo-Croatian War, but this is the case for so many horrible situations around the world. Syria, Rwanda, our neighbors to the South and Central America who risk everything to try to immigrate here because of horrific conditions in their own countries, and obviously the collective trauma of slavery in our own country and how it has been passed down for generations. This at times is a brutal story, but at the beginning, some of that brutality is filtered for the reader through the naive lens of a 10-year-old. Everything is okay until it isn't. And we don't see 10-year-old Anna really getting scared until she realizes that her parents are scared. But by the end of the book, there's some normalcy and hope in the story. This book was on many best of lists the year it was published in 2015, and it was nominated for the Women's Prize for Fiction. And the author, Sarah Novich, has a new book coming out next month set at a school for the deaf. And the author herself is deaf. And that book is called True Biz. And I'm anxious to read more from her. Very good. I'm going to add that to my list, but it unfortunately, you know, because of the podcast, I'm not going to read it anytime soon. Yeah, it's really, really good. (laughs) I hope it's before 10 years. (laughs) All right. Well, we are going to take another quick break. When we come back, Angela is going to answer her three in the third degree. All right, we are back with Angela, and she's going to answer her three in the third degree. So you've mentioned on Instagram that you're totally bougie about your skincare products. And as Amy and I are women of a certain age, we want to know what is the best product you've found for your skin, and why do you love it? 
Oh, my goodness. If you could see my bathroom, you would probably hang your head in shame (laughs) over the products that I have. So I do go from low end, like Noxzema. I swear by Noxzema. And I've been using it since I was a little girl. And that's really what I use when I'm wearing makeup because Noxzema will strip everything from your face you will not be left with skin so i love noxema because i don't have to do multiple washes it takes it all off in one fell swoop now on the bougie side of it and this is where i'm extremely embarrassed is i love this product called tata harper's regenerating cleanser and i'm gonna tell y'all the price tag and you'll know why i'm embarrassed (laughs) It's $86. Wow. But, but does it, it work? I tell myself it does because it's, <laughs> it's $86. It's <laughs> <laughs> but I really like it because it is 100% natural. It's non-toxic and it's free from all fillers and synthetics and artificial colors and fragrances. So it's worth it in terms of you're putting something really natural back into your skin because I feel like Noxzema is not natural I don't think but it takes the makeup off so that's what I'm after with that the Tata Harper I feel like is putting things back in nutrients back into my skin that allows for the wrinkles under my eyes not to be so noticeable Mm. but then I I really truly I have to thank my mother and my ancestors who I inherited this from I have a feeling I probably could just slosh some water on my face (laughs) and I would be okay but you know when I was a little girl that was what I always wanted for my birthday I wanted face products I wanted things to put on my face so I could look like my aunts and cousins who'd walk around with face masks on and things I just thought that was what it meant to be an adult was to put stuff on your face and it never (laughs) it never stopped it only got worse it's so So, funny it's so funny to hear you talk about Noxzema because that's what my mother always used was Noxzema and I hadn't thought about Noxzema in years and as far as the bougie product I'm sure that this is what they always tell people for those really expensive things that you only need to use like a microscopic amount right like no bigger than the a pea a pea or the top of a pin right (laughs) For, for your whole face no one does that. They, they they tell you that so you'll buy it. But but what I have done is I have I have an arsenal of low end, high end, and then the middle of the roads. And I do, I would not use the Tata Harper Regenerating Cleanser every day. She gets put on my face maybe twice a week. So I have her products in rotation. Yeah. Well, and and I've learned, you know, my parents were very frugal, very, very, very frugal when I was growing up. And so it took me a long time to sort of decide for myself that you can go cheap on a lot of things and that's fine, but there are some things that it is probably worth it to spend a little more money. And I have very sensitive skin. So for me, if I found something and it works, there are some things just pay the money for them and move on. Okay. Question number two, you've been a professor at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana for several years, but you attended college in Alabama. So what is something that you miss about living in Alabama and something you've grown to appreciate about Indiana? So what I'm about to say is going to seem like it's in contradiction, but it really isn't. I absolutely miss true summers. And I know Indiana people like to think they have summer. (laughs) 
And I know when it gets to be 90 degrees that y'all sort of lose your minds and think that it's hot. (laughs) But I try to remind people, look, I grew up where summers were 100 degrees plus, and we children played out there all day long. I'm sure we drank water. I don't remember it, but I don't think anyone got dehydrated. So I don't know what we were able to do down there that didn't make us all just fall dead from sunstroke. But those were some of the best days that I remember was just being outside and soaking up all of that good heat. And the fact that we only really get good heat for maybe part of July, it just, um, I miss that. But then on the flip side of that, about Indiana, I love the winters. Mm -hmm. I love the snow. I love sitting in my recliner with the windows open and just watching the snow fall and the quietness of it. It's, um, It's something that I would miss if I were not here because we didn't have snow uh, to speak of where I grew up. If it snowed, you know, it was almost like seeing Haley's Comet or something. It just was so rare. Did you grow up in Alabama? I did. I grew up in a little town. Actually, the town that I grew up in is referenced in Drinking from a Bitter Cup, Ayrton, Alabama, not too far from Ozark where the story takes place. Okay. Well, I agree with you. I love a good snow, but I don't want it to last months and months. So a little bit of winter's good. Too much winter's too much. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Last question. On your Instagram page, you do a segment each week called Writing Tip Tuesdays. So what is something that you may not feel super confident about that you personally would like professional tips for doing? I would have to say marketing is the thing that I'm struggling with. That's hence why writing Tip Tuesdays even came about. My son was very disgusted with my social media presence. (laughs) Um, He's like, Mom, this is not cutting it. You've got to do more. You've got to be more proactive. So I said, guess what, son? You're now my marketing person. (laughs) So I just send him the ideas and he makes it look pretty. But one thing that that I have to balance, which is the writing has got to always come first. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't spend a lot of energy on Instagram, TikTok, and whatever else is out there because it makes no sense to build all these followers and I don't have a product. Right. And so I I'm learning to let the people that know what they're doing do it. And let them tell me what they need. And I just stay out of the way. I do interact with people on Instagram, but I usually do the commenting stuff. I can do that. But trying to make things look, you know, like it's not homemade. Mm-hmm. I'm just not good at it. But So I, I allow the young people in my life to help direct me how things should look or how they think they should look. That's probably wise. I know it's taken me a long time to feel comfortable on Instagram, and now I finally do, but it took a long time. And it's it's kind of a, it's a time suck, you know, <laughs> trying oh, to figure is. out how to do all that stuff and spending all that time on it. And yeah. Right. I mean, you can't just slap something up there. It needs to look, you know, aesthetically, it needs to look nice, especially if it's related to your work, whatever it is that that happens to be. But, you know, I just made the decision to focus my energies on one or two things and then everything else 
you know, give it over to someone else to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Angela, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you, hearing about your your different books and, and how you've changed as a writer over time. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you, Amy and Carrie, for the invitation. This has been fun. The time went by so fast. <laughs> <laughs> You can find Angela on Instagram at Angela Jackson Brown author and at her author website, AngelaJacksonBrown.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episodes, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org. <laughs>